You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Thanks for downloading episode number 54 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. We ended the last episode with the Federal Army rolling forward into northeastern Virginia, Beauregard pulling his troops back behind Bull Run, and Joseph E. Johnston's force starting to slip away from the Shenandoah Valley and make its way east toward Manassas. On July 17th, McDowell had been frustrated by the failure of his plan to trap the advanced rebel force at Fairfax Courthouse, and he was upset by the shameful breakdown of discipline within his army that day, with the looting of Fairfax Courthouse and the burning of Germantown. Hoping to convert his men from thugs back into soldiers, an angry McDowell ordered Tyler to resume the advance with his division. Tyler was to take the road to Centerville and pursue the retreating Confederates. Centerville was just a dusty little hamlet, but like Fairfax Courthouse, Centerville was another important crossroads where several roads intersected, and it lay several miles in front of Bull Run. But Tyler's force was exhausted and somewhat disorganized, and it only managed to march a few miles toward Centerville before the sun set on July 17th. McDowell ordered Tyler to continue his advance the next morning. The Federal Army's advance came as no surprise to PGT Beauregard, and on the 17th he successfully managed to get his advanced outpost back behind Bull Run. But even arrayed behind the stream, Beauregard knew his command lacked the means to meet and repel the numerically superior Yankees, and so he sent out a plea for reinforcements asking that the War Department in Richmond order Johnston's force to come east from the Shenandoah Valley. For good measure, Beauregard also sent an urgent message directly to Johnston. After receiving those wires from Richmond and from Beauregard, Johnston didn't hesitate. He called his brigade commanders together and told them that they would begin withdrawing from the valley the next morning. And so by 9 a.m. on July 18th, Johnston was ready to go. While Jeb Stewart's cavalry screened the withdrawal, Colonel Thomas Jackson's brigade would lead the way on the hot and dusty march up and out of the valley. Jackson pushed his men hard. Not until 2 a.m., after passing through Ashby's Gap in the Blue Ridge Mountains, did he allow his men a few hours' sleep, while, according to legend, Jackson himself stood watch. Then it was on to Piedmont Station on the Manassas Gap Railroad. By 8 o'clock on the morning of Friday, the 19th, Jackson and his tired men were boarding rail cars that would take them the remaining 34 miles to Manassas Junction. By late that afternoon, Jackson was at Manassas, and Bartow's 2nd Brigade was en route. And then shortly after dawn on the 20th, B's 3rd Brigade, accompanied by Johnston, began boarding trains. 
Meanwhile, Robert Patterson, the commander of the small federal army tasked specifically with keeping Johnston pinned down in the Shenandoah, had written to Winfield Scott in Washington, saying, quote, The enemy has stolen no march upon me. I have kept him actively employed. End quote. Actually, by the time Jackson's men arrived at Piedmont Station and started to board the rail cars that would transport them to Manassas Junction, there had already been some sharp fighting along Bull Run at Blackburn's Ford. When Tyler's division resumed its advance on the morning of July 18th, McDowell's orders were to seize Centerville and then, quote, "...observe well the roads to Bull Run and Warrenton. Do not bring on an engagement, but keep up the impression that we are moving on Manassas." End quote. Tyler had his column moving early, and by 9 a.m. the first Union soldiers were entering Centerville. John Hennessy, in his book, The First Battle of Manassas, An End to Innocence, writes, quote, At the junction of three important roads, the Warrenton Turnpike, Braddock Road, and the Road to Chantilly, Centerville figured prominently in every map of the era, and much had been made by the Federals about capturing the place. Cheers rolled through Tyler's column as the men tramped up the ridge to the crossroads. But for all its notoriety, Centerville was an eminently unimpressive place. It looks for all the world, wrote a man in William T. Sherman's brigade, as though it had done its business, whatever it was, if it ever had any, fully eighty years ago, and since then had bolted its doors, put out its fires, and gone to sleep. End quote. Hennessy goes on to explain that Tyler wasn't disposed to linger in Centerville. He believed he was hot on the heels of the retreating rebels. Locals told him that the southern soldiers, after escaping from Fairfax Courthouse, had retreated southwestward toward Mitchell's and Blackburn's fords across Bull Run. And here might be a good time to step back and give a brief overview of the Bull Run line. And in all of this, we'll do our best to help you build a mental map of the area but we're really assuming that if you're at all interested in this, you'll have already hunted up an actual map to take a look at, maybe a map in one of the Civil War atlases that we recommended back with episode number 38. And you can always go back to that show's post on the website and see those recommendations, and hopefully maybe pick up one or more of those atlases for your bookshelf. And that way, during the course of the podcast, you can follow along with the action as we describe it with the various battles. But anyway. So as we mentioned previously, Bull Run was situated like a defensive moat about three miles in front of Manassas Junction. The stream flowed from northwest to southeast on a crooked route through the countryside. That countryside was alternately rolling hill and gentle plain, but along almost all of the stream itself, the banks were steep, and so Bull Run was crossable by a large military force only at one stone bridge or at a number of fords. At the few good fords, the water would be shallow enough for infantry to cross and the stream bed firm enough to permit the passage of artillery. So, with that in mind, the far right of Beauregard's line, that is down to the south, was at Union Mills, the place where the Orange and Alexandria Railroad Bridge crossed the run or it did before the Confederates burned it. But on this far flank, Beauregard had positioned Brigadier General Richard S. Ewell's brigade. 
A mile and a half above Union Mills was McLean's Ford, near the Wilmer McLean home. Standing behind this Ford was the brigade of Daniel Rumpf Jones. Less than a mile upstream from McLean's Ford sat Blackburn's Ford, and three-quarters of a mile beyond that was Mitchell's Ford. As for the importance of these three crossing points, William C. Davis, in his book Battle at Bull Run, explains that Mitchell's and Blackburn's, quote, were served by branches of the main road from Centerville to Manassas, and both would probably be attacked. All three of these fords did share an advantage. They were located along a convex bend on Bull Run, with McLean House roughly the focal point. A strong force of two or three brigades could defend the banks of the run and the plain above with the advantage of interior lines. Thus, if Mitchells were threatened, a Confederate force at McLean's could come to its rescue by a straight march of a mile, whereas attacking Federals, to go from McLean's to Mitchell's, would have to march around the bend of the run a mile and three quarters, end quote. Beauregard considered this middle sector, where Bull Run flowed in a horseshoe shape, to be the most critical spot in his line, and so to cover vital Mitchell's ford, he placed his largest brigade, commanded by Millage Bonham, and then nearby at Blackburn's, Beauregard placed another brigade, led by James Longstreet. Continuing our survey as we move upstream from Mitchell's ford, the next major crossing point was Ball's ford. Here, two minor roads from Centerville converged and crossed the run by a steep ascent that was dominated by a hill on which sat Portisie, the home of Francis W. Lewis. 800 yards above Balls was Lewis's Ford, which crossed the stream on the opposite side of the Lewis's Hill. Covering these two fords was the assignment of Philip St. George Cox Brigade. Above Lewis's Ford, the turnpike from Centerville to Warrenton crossed at a stone bridge. This was where Beauregard anchored the left end of his line. The good wide road led over relatively level ground right up to the stone bridge, crossed over Bull Run, then passed the Robinson House on the slopes of Henry Hill before continuing straight toward Warrenton. The brigade covering the stone bridge was commanded by Nathan Evans. As we've already said, Beauregard expected the Federals would attack his line at Mitchell's Ford, where the main road from Centerville to Manassas crossed Bull Run. He thought it extremely unlikely either of his flanks would be threatened, since the Stone Bridge to the north and Union Mills to the south would be the longest routes to Manassas Junction for a Federal column. And so Beauregard considered the middle sector the most critical spot in his line, and he deployed his men accordingly. And then besides the six Confederate brigades we've already mentioned, a seventh, led by Jubal Early, was placed as a reserve behind Beauregard's right wing, ready to move forward to support any of the brigades on that side of the line. And so by first light on Thursday, July 18th, although Bonham's men were exhausted from their hasty retreat from Fairfax Courthouse the day before, Beauregard still had his army arrayed behind Bull Run, awaiting the Federal attack. Remember that for the morning of the 18th, McDowell's orders to Tyler were to seize Centerville and then, quote, observe well the roads to Bull Run and Warrenton. Do not bring on an engagement, but keep up the impression that we are moving on Manassas, end quote. Tyler was not to bring on a serious engagement, but was only to act as if the Federal Army was moving straight down the road to Manassas, 
because from Centerville, McDowell actually planned to slide south and turn Beauregard's right flank. McDowell had no intention of attacking straight down the main road to Manassas Junction. But on the morning of July 18th, despite his restraining orders, Daniel Tyler did in fact bring on a serious engagement. Since then, that engagement has generally been referred to as the Affair at Blackburn's Ford. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Eleven o'clock came, and the men were scattered into an irregular line, some sleeping, and others engaged in their various diversions, and nothing was heard but the drowsy hum of the big blue bottles and the cawing of crows, who sailed lazily in circles high in the bright clouds. I recollect I was leaning against a tree, my musket between my knees, wondering if war was really so terrible as represented, and looking around at my various comrades in arms, most of them boys, not out of their teens, and wondering too whether such boys were fitted to engage in grim war. I had just put out my pipe, and had lain down intending to try and go to sleep, when suddenly, bang, bang, two guns went off on the opposite side, and our two pickets rushed for our side of the river. Immediately every man was on his feet, gun in hand, and the order, fall in, right dress, was rapidly given as the men were forming, all in disorder. A stunning and rattling volley, beginning far below us, came from the opposite bank, and the running flash of guns showed at once that we were attacked in force, and with a suddenness that showed they were bent on a storming. The deadly hiss of the mini was now heard by us for the first time, as they went hurtling over us, fortunately too high, cutting of twigs from trees. Shh, shh, bang, bang! 
The shells came right and left over our heads. They burst, shining a shower of sticks and branches down on us. It was useless to attempt any order now. Every man acted for themselves. Most stood gallantly and delivered their fire in return, though we couldn't see a thing. But away we fired as fast as we could load, blazing away in every direction. It was no longer volleys battling up and down the bank, but a roar. Not a dull sound, but precisely like the crackling of the woods when a forest is on fire. The shells came whirring among the trees, bursting with a loud report that added to the terrors at the scene, and men began to fall every second, some dead, others choking as the cruel ball would tear through them. Our front line, fighting without order, was borne back to the edge of the trees. Some of the men were running in every direction. Officers urging them on, the cries of the wounded men, with the shrill wing of the bullet, and the thud of the ball as it hit the trunk of the trees, the shrieking sound of the shrapnel shot, and the wild yells of the enemy, increased the uproar, and everything seemed going against us. Private Alexander Hunter, 17th Virginia, Longstreet's Brigade after Daniel Tyler seized Centerville, he suggested to the commander of his lead brigade, Colonel Israel B. Richardson, that they push south to make a reconnaissance of the ground between the dusty little hamlet and Bull Run. Richardson put together a makeshift battalion consisting of 40 men from each of the four regiments in his brigade and put them under the command of Captain Robert Bressnider of the 2nd Michigan. He also gathered a squadron of cavalry and a couple of cannon. Shortly after 10 a.m., the little force, accompanied by Tyler and Richardson, set out southward on the road toward Blackburn's and Mitchell's fords. Tyler and Richardson moved along the road for about three miles until they emerged from the woods into fields overlooking Bull Run. Directly to their front, a farm path led to Blackburn's ford, while the main road went off to the right, crossing the stream a mile away at Mitchell's ford. They could see Bonham's Confederate Brigade in a strong position covering Mitchell's Ford, but the Federal officers could see no rebels defending Blackburn's, although it was assumed they were there somewhere amongst the trees and brush. About this time, the Army's chief engineer, Major John G. Barnard, rode up and reminded Tyler and Richardson that McDowell did not want to do battle there, but then Barnard casually said that he didn't see how a demonstration against the Confederates could do any harm. Tyler thought a demonstration was a capital idea, so he directed Richardson to bring the rest of his brigade forward. He ordered that the two cannon already present be unlimbered and set up nearby, where they were to open fire in an attempt to get the rebels covering Blackburn's Ford to reveal themselves. Tyler also told Schneider to deploy a small force of skirmishers in front of the guns. The concealed Confederate force guarding Blackburn's Ford belonged to the command of Brigadier General James Longstreet. Longstreet's father, impressed by his son's rock-solid character, informally called him Peter, and so he was later often known as Old Pete. Destined to become Robert E. Lee's most trusted subordinate, Longstreet was born in South Carolina but grew up in Georgia. He graduated from West Point in 1842, 54th in a class of 62. While at the military academy, Longstreet befriended a shy cadet named Ulysses S. Grant and later served as best man at Grant's wedding to Longstreet's cousin, Julia Dent. Longstreet distinguished himself in numerous actions during the Mexican War, winning two brevet promotions. 
Wounded at Chapultepec while charging forward with the 8th Infantry's colors, he handed the flag to his friend George Pickett. Upon the outbreak of the Civil War, Longstreet resigned from the service, and on July 1, 1861, he was appointed a brigadier general in the Confederate Army and sent to Manassas. There, Beauregard placed him in command of a 1,400-man brigade composed of three Virginia regiments, the 1st, 11th, and 17th. On July 18th, as Tyler looked on, when the two Federal cannon overlooking Bull Run opened fire, they quickly drove off several distant rebel guns, but the Confederate infantry remained stubbornly silent, refusing to reveal their positions. Tyler, frustrated, decided to up the ante by advancing Brechtschneider's skirmishers and several companies of the 1st Massachusetts toward Blackburn's Ford. By this time, an alarmed Barnard had been joined by another of McDowell's staff officers, Captain James B. Fry, and both Barnard and Fry begged Tyler not to escalate the affair and said that if he did so, he would be violating McDowell's orders not to bring on an engagement. But as Barnard later reported, Tyler paid no mind to their protests since he was certain, quote, that the enemy would run whenever menaced by serious attack, end quote. For an hour or so, the Federal skirmish line traded fire with some of Longstreet's men, but then Richardson, tired of the tactical stalemate, suggested that the rest of his brigade be pushed forward. Tyler agreed, and by noon, Richardson's men were moving forward toward Bull Run, and Tyler had also ordered William T. Sherman's brigade back in Centerville to move up. Richardson had formed his brigade with the 12th New York on the left. Next in line was the 1st Massachusetts. Next to the Bay Staters was the 2nd Michigan, and on the right was the 3rd Michigan. As Richardson's men prepared to advance, some of the Union cannon moved up and blasted the still-concealed Confederates with canister. Longstreet's men responded with a furious blast of musketry that surprised and worried Tyler. He later said, quote, It appeared to me that there were 5,000 muskets fired at once. End quote. The volume of enemy fire convinced Tyler Blackburn's Ford was heavily defended and that he should break off the engagement. But by that time, Richardson's brigade was already beginning its advance, and Tyler was powerless to stop them. The 12th New York moved forward into the woods to the left of the track leading down to the ford, and as they approached the banks of Bull Run, they were rocked by a tremendous volley from across the stream fired by the 1st Virginia. After trading fire with the Confederates for about 20 minutes, one company of the Green New Yorkers broke for the rear, and that disordered retrograde movement prompted the rest of the regiment to start falling back, too. Faster than you can say Jack Robinson, the New Yorkers' withdrawal quickly degenerated into a mad scramble for the rear that neither their colonel nor Richardson could stop. As the 12th New York fell back, Longstreet ordered some of his men to charge across Bull Run, and he also called for help from Jubal Early, whose brigade was positioned just behind the front line. The flight of the New Yorkers exposed the flank of the 1st Massachusetts, as well as the 2nd Michigan, and they came under a punishing heavy fire from the men Longstreet pushed across the stream. Longstreet, a cigar clenched between his teeth, had his horse shot from under him, but he was determined to press the Yankees. Richardson's blood was also up, and when Tyler rode forward to wrap up the affair, Richardson requested permission to push his three remaining regiments forward, saying that he could, quote, clear out those fellows from the bottom in two hours, end quote. 
But Tyler had had enough, and was more than ready to bring this little battle to a close. He ordered Richardson to fall back. Richardson began his withdrawal just as Early's men were arriving on the field. But as they moved toward Bull Run, the Confederate reinforcements were in clear view of the Union forces on the high ground on the opposite side of the stream. As they moved up, they took fire from the Federals, and the raw 7th Virginia opened up without orders and started shooting into the rear of some of Longstreet's men. In an attempt to stop the friendly fire, Longstreet interposed himself between the units, but he ended up having to throw himself to the ground to avoid being shot by the skittish Virginians. After Early restored order in his command, Longstreet briefly considered launching a strong counterattack against the retiring Federals. But even as they withdrew, the Yankees had put up a pretty stiff fight, and besides, taking friendly fire from the rear had dampened the enthusiasm of Longstreet's men. And so Longstreet decided nothing more could be done, and he called back his advance units from the far side of the stream. The Confederate artillery and Federal guns continued to fire at one another from long range for another hour, during which time General Beauregard's dinner was ruined when a shell crashed into the McLean house just as he was sitting down to eat. Longstreet later recalled that, quote, the interruption so annoyed him that he sent us four six-pound and three rifled guns to return fire and avenge the loss of his dinner, end quote. As this was going on, Sherman's brigade arrived on the scene from Centerville. In a letter to his brother written the following day, Sherman reported, quote, The cannonading was quite brisk, but the shots mostly passed over us. The batteries were simply firing at each other. General McDowell arrived during the cannonading, and I think he did not like it, end quote. Well, Sherman was right. McDowell was furious with Tyler for bringing on a serious engagement at Blackburn's Ford. The commanding general was angry because his orders had been disobeyed, and he was also worried the repulse of Richardson's brigade and the small southern victory would have a demoralizing effect on the rest of the Union army. Despite the fact that the soldiers of both sides were doing their best to kill one another, the affair at Blackburn's Ford did have its lighter moments. For example, while the other regiments in Richardson's brigade were furiously trading shots with the rebels, the men of the idle 3rd Michigan found time to pick blackberries. And then across Bull Run, as Union shells came screaming into the Confederate lines, it seems that a number of Southern soldiers took refuge behind a stately old tree, forming a line directly behind the tree's trunk. One Virginian recalled, quote, As a shell from the battery on our right would come whistling through the air, the whole line would run around and place the tree between them and the shells. All at once, another battery opened on the left, and as the balls came from that direction, the men would hang on to each other and run to the opposite side, and so they kept shifting to and fro, end quote. Despite such annex, or maybe because of them, the casualties in the fight at Blackburn's Ford were relatively light. Longstreet reported his losses as 63 killed and wounded, while Richardson lost 83 men killed, wounded, or missing. When all was said and done, the affair at Blackburn's Ford did boost the morale of Beauregard's troops as they waited for Johnston's men to arrive from the Shenandoah. But there's no indication the small Confederate victory on the 18th demoralized the rank-and-file soldiers of the Union Army before the big battle, as McDowell feared it might. The 
The fight at Blackburn's Ford annoyed McDowell because it was such a poorly handled affair, but it did give him valuable information about the strength of the rebel defenses along that section of Beauregard's line. As we mentioned before, McDowell had originally planned to slide south and turn the enemy's right flank, but while such a movement looked possible on a map, McDowell found that the rugged terrain wouldn't actually allow such a maneuver. That meant sliding to the south was no longer an option, and the affair at Blackburn's Ford indicated that the center of the Confederate line was stoutly defended, and so McDowell's thoughts turned northward to Beauregard's left flank. As John Hennessy explains in the First Battle of Manassas, quote, His initial intent had been to move around the Confederate right, but his examination of the ground south of the Orange and the Alexandria revealed roads that amounted to little more than twisted woodland trails insufficient for the large-scale movement needed. Instead, he would have to move by Beauregard's left, which rested at the Stone Bridge. The key to such a movement was finding a well-screened, suitable crossing of Bull Run above the Stone Bridge. That would be Engineer Barnard's job. The army would rest and feed itself July 19th, and assuming Barnard found a crossing, the climactic movement would take place July 20th. End quote. As the Federal Army rested and fed itself on Friday, July 19th, Beauregard was glad for the delay, since it gave Johnston time to come east from the Shenandoah. And, as we've already said, Beauregard had grand plans for the two Confederate forces to crush McDowell between them. In fact, on the afternoon of the 19th, Beauregard was huddled with his brigade commanders at his headquarters at the McLean House, explaining his plans for the next day, when he was interrupted by the arrival of a dusty figure in a rumpled old blue uniform. He said he was Colonel Jackson, and that he and his brigade had just detrained at Manassas Junction. Now, I absolutely love this scene, because Beauregard seems to have been completely astonished by Jackson's sudden appearance and unexpected news. The Creole had assumed Johnston would march his command east from the Shenandoah, Indeed, Beauregard's plan depended upon Johnston marching his men east so that he fell upon McDowell's right flank. But now here was this unknown character claiming that Johnston's cavalry and artillery were coming by road, but all of his infantry would be coming in by train and arriving at Manassas Junction. In the end, Beauregard simply chose to ignore Jackson's report, believing the man's arrival by rail must be some kind of aberration and his claim that the rest of Johnston's command was following him must be a mistake. Beauregard seems to have reached this conclusion for no other reason than because if Johnston was coming by rail, well then it would upset Beauregard's precious plan to smash the Yankees. Meanwhile, across the lines, McDowell now knew that he wanted to turn the Confederate left, but as yet he didn't know how he was going to make that movement. Finding an answer to that problem would be the job of the Army's chief engineer, Major John G. Bernard, who we've met already, of course, at the fiasco at Blackburn's Ford. But anyway, as the Federal Army gathered around Centerville and prepared itself for the upcoming battle, Bernard actually spent two days completing his assignment. It wasn't until midday on Saturday, July 20th, that he could report to McDowell that he had located fords above the stone bridge that would allow the Army to turn the rebels' left flank. When Bernard started his search, he began by looking at his maps. By all accounts, the stone bridge where the Warrenton Turnpike crossed Bull Run marked the extreme left of the Confederate position. 
Bernard knew the bridge was defended by both infantry and artillery, and in addition, locals claimed it was mined and ready for the defenders to blow it up as the Yankees crossed it. Two miles upstream, or north of the bridge, however, Bernard's maps showed a ford marked Sudley. It was upon that spot that the engineer focused his attention. From that information already on hand, Bernard believed Sudley Ford was the answer to the problem of how the Federal Army could turn the rebels' left flank, but his map showed no roads leading to it from the Warrenton Turnpike, which was the route the Army would take out of Centerville. But between Centerville and the Stone Bridge was a stream known as Cub Run, and unconfirmed reports indicated that just beyond Cub Run, a farm track branched off to the north. It seemed that by using the farm track, the army might reach Sudley Ford undetected by the enemy. And so, on the morning of the 19th, Bernard set out, along with the cavalry escort, to confirm that McDowell could use that route to outflank the Confederates. Also tagging along on the reconnaissance was the governor of Rhode Island, William Sprague, who was visiting the army to personally check on the well-being of his state's volunteers. Sprague was just one of the politicians, senators, and congressmen who had come down from Washington and were touring the Army's camps and hovering around McDowell's headquarters. Major Bernard, Sprague, and their escort rode west out of Centerville along the Warrenton Turnpike, crossed Cub Run, and then, just past the stream, near a blacksmith's shop, they found the farm road leading northward. The party followed the track, moving in and out of woods and across fields, but then they encountered Confederate cavalry. Bernard later recalled, quote, As we were most anxious to avoid attracting the enemy's attention to our design, we did not care to pursue the reconnaissance further, end quote. And so Bernard turned back, but that night he sent out another party to try to reach Sudley, but it too failed. Nevertheless, by noon the next day, July 20th, with the pressure building to firm up the Army's plans for the big battle, Bernard told McDowell that Sudley Ford was suitable for the movement that would allow the army to turn the rebels' left flank. What Bernard failed to mention was that he still wasn't 100% certain of the approach to the ford. With Bernard's report in hand, McDowell finalized his battle plan. The next day, Sunday, the 21st, while part of his army demonstrated in front of the lower crossings, 13,000 men would march north and then cross Bull Run at Sudley Ford and another smaller ford just downstream. With this movement having turned the Confederate left, that force would sweep southward into Beauregard's rear. If everything went as planned, McDowell would smash the rebel army and the road to Richmond would lay open before him. If everything went as planned. Well, I know that last week I said that with this show, we'd get to the start of the battle, but now actually seems like a good point to start to wrap up this episode. Since we have the Union Army ready to move out and turn the Confederates' left flank, we have Johnston's army rolling into Manassas Junction, and we have Beauregard still cherishing grand plans of taking the offensive and turning the tables on McDowell. And so that is where we'll leave things for now. But next time, I promise, the First Battle of Manassas will finally get started. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is A Single Grand Victory, The First Campaign and Battle of Manassas by Ethan S. Rafuse. 
If you could only have a single book on First Manassas, maybe if you were stuck on a deserted island, then we'd suggest you choose A Single Grand Victory. It's really an outstanding look at both the campaign leading up to the battle and the battle itself. Rayfuse does an excellent job of providing a lot of detailed information while still writing an engaging narrative. It's good stuff. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations for your deserted island reading at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then we wanted to thank Zachary M. for his donation this past week. Thanks, Zachary. Zachary also sent us a nice message via Twitter, uh, letting us know that he listened through all the episodes of the podcast, and now he's finding that waiting a week between each new show is difficult. And, you know, we actually get that quite often, uh, that someone discovers the podcast, rips through the past episodes fairly quickly, and then they have a hard time waiting a week as they look forward to each new show. And to that, we always say that we look forward to each new show, too. And we have to wait a week also. Um, if Tracy and I could, uh, believe me, we'd put out a new episode every day. Uh, here with the Civil War, this is all such an an exciting and important story, and we're completely passionate about telling that story. Um you know, I'm not sure we fully realized how special this project would be when we first started the podcast. I mean, back then, we weren't even sure anyone else would be interested. But now, uh, as time goes on, we have more and more of a feeling, uh, a feeling not exactly that we're doing something special, but more that we're a part of something special. I agree. So anyway... That's a very long-winded way to say thanks to all of you for being a part of all of this with us. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.